This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Today we're talking about the past, the present, and the future of the automotive vehicle. In the first half of the show, I had the pleasure of talking to Matt Anderson, a curator at the Henry Ford Museum. In the second half of the show, it's now my great pleasure of welcoming Dan Can. Dan is the Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder of Cruise, a leader in self-driving car technology. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me, Christian. Hey, Dan, do you, do you actually enjoy driving a car? Um, you know, I, I do, but... Uh... You know, if I, I do my job right, hopefully I'll never have to again. <laughs> do I do I get into trouble if I ask what car you drive personally? Uh, no. Uh, right now, I've got a Cadillac XT4. Um, it's kind of the new crossover that they've built. And uh, go back to the days when you started Cruise. So, if I remember correctly, you were getting the help there of the Y Combinator out in out, out west. Uh, how did you get started? Yeah. Um, so. Uh, we started the company back in 2015 with Kyle uh, Vogt, my co-founder. Um, he's always been into robotics, um, and uh, you know, ever since working on the DARPA Grand Challenge at MIT, and so it was it was his idea, and uh, we thought it was uh, you know a great opportunity for us to have uh, kind of an amazing impact on the world. Uh, so started back in 2015, and then went through YC, as you mentioned. So the DARPA Challenge was really like. Uh a big event at that time, right? I mean, uh, lots of kind of initiatives. First round of DAPA failed. Everybody failed pretty miserably. Uh, second round, more success. Uh, t- tell us about those days. Um, yeah, so Kyle went through that when he was at MIT um, and uh, before he started Twitch uh, with my brother. And uh, at that time, he was working with a bunch of undergrads. He was the only uh, kind of undergraduate team uh, as you mentioned, a lot of companies, or sorry, a lot of teams failed at the time, and, and his uh, car didn't drive that far either, unfortunately. And then uh, what nut did you guys crack? I mean, so what was your thing that nobody else had that both made you successful initially in the DAPA challenge uh, and then later on when, when you kind of uh, got, got acquired by, by, by General Motors? Um, so for us, I think it's always been we need to focus on what's the most important thing and what is the way to demonstrate um, you know, that we're doing the right things. And so um, you know, when we originally got started, we started with uh, kind of what we considered the smallest uh, I guess, product that we could build that demonstrates that we can drive a car autonomously. And so we started with um, what we would consider a highway super cruise-like system. Um, to show that you know our cars can drive down the highway at highway speeds, and then over time we pivoted to a point A to point B autonomous solution um, that would solve a much kind of harder problem. So you know for us it's always been how do we focus on the smallest uh, project that's going to demonstrate value to the world and you know continue growing from there. And your idea was a kit, actually, if I recall correctly, right? I mean, something that you could retrofit an existing car with as opposed to building, like, a whole new car company. Exactly, yeah. So we uh, originally started building a kit uh, that had a couple radars, a couple cameras, um, and kind of doing an aftermarket uh, automation upgrade to uh, a car. 
So what was in that kit? I mean, so you, you, you casually mentioned a couple of radars, a couple of cameras. Can you just give us a sense of the, the, the modules, the subsystems in there from uh, not, not like a super engineering perspective, but a little bit more detailed technicality? For sure. So uh, we installed a couple motors uh, to control the vehicle. So some actuators that would allow you to uh, press the steering, brake, gas, those types of things. And then we had a couple of radars that would allow you to see kind of down the highway, uh, recognize vehicles, and then a couple of cameras for lane detection and then also backups to the, the radars. And so the entire system was not meant to be kind of the full automated system, but it was uh, meant to allow you to drive down the highways and allow you to be the backup if, if there was a problem. So that's interesting. So you mentioned the output in some sense of your system was motors that were replacing driver actions. This was for models of preceding a time where things were more fly-by-wire? Um, it was actually also uh, for cars that were, were fly-by-wire, but because we weren't working with a standard automotive company, we had to develop this system to kind of exist on its own outside of it. And then that would allow us to then take this system and port it in modularly to other types of vehicles as well. Oh, so interesting. They, they didn't let you or easily made it possible for you to access their software then. So the inter, the mechanical interface is always one that, that you can... Exactly. Uh, interesting. So being a, a regular out in San Francisco, I, I often see the cruise cars. Uh, how, how many cars do you have on the road right now? Um, we've registered about 180 cars in California. And we're driving around San Francisco um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then, but you also out in Scottsdale, or? Uh, yeah, we also have operations in uh, Phoenix and also um, in Michigan. You guys are easy to spot, right? Because it's it's in in some sense the the cars. I mean, in, independent of the logo on on the vehicle, you have the the, the fairly visible the, the the lighter equipment sitting on the roof. Uh, can you tell us now that the, the cars that are out on the road, uh, you've you've learned a lot of new things since you kind of launched that kit some uh, four years ago. So w what are these cars look like? Yeah, sure. Uh, so our cars today are all white electric. Um, vehicles that are based off of the Chevy Bolt. Um, today, now they also have a what we call the top hat. It's a, a sensor array uh, that sits on top of the vehicles that includes LIDARs, um, cameras, and then we've also added radars around the car and, and ultrasonics and other, other backup sensors that we utilize uh, to make sure that we can drive safely at all times. Can you explain a little bit, uh, again, without that much technical detail, but so we, we, we mentioned cameras before. We mentioned radar, now from, from radar to LIDAR. Can you explain our listeners a little bit kind of what these systems do? Absolutely. So LIDAR is uh, a light sensor that allows you to determine the range of different things, um, and uh, it's, it's super accurate. So, you know, we are able to detect vehicles um, and, and pedestrians and uh, bicyclists and, and other objects in the world, and we use this as kind of our primary sensor um, because it, it's, it's extremely high quality and, and uh, you know, allows us to uh, really determine where things are in the real world in comparison to our vehicle. Uh, we also use cameras and, and radars, as I mentioned before, uh, to determine other vehicles um, and, and objects in the world. And we use these sensors in combination because some of, these, uh, some of the sensors actually uh, work better for, for different different purposes. Um, so it's all about redundancy. It's all about making sure that at all times we can detect things that are happening around our vehicle to operate safely. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. 
So then, in many ways, with with the, the cameras, with the radar, with the lidar, in terms of the input bandwidth, in terms of the information that you get into this system, you are much, much, much better than I am as a driver. That's the hope. Yeah, um, with all these systems, you know, we can detect things around the vehicle um, in all directions, and we're always paying attention. So, you know, you or I, we might get distracted by, uh, you know, our cell phones or other things that are happening out in the real world. But these systems never get distracted. There's all, they're always watching and they're always um, paying attention. So where is, in your experience or in your engineering view, where right now is, is the bottleneck, so to say, right? I mean, you get like massive information into the system, which clearly outperforms any human driver because, again, you can, 360 degrees, you can see in the dark, in fog, you're not distracted. Um, so where, where is the bottleneck when it comes to, like, getting this technology to, to, to scale? Um, so I'd say the bottleneck is actually just a, it's a matter of time um, and kind of the, our ability to process that information and, and, and make the car react to um, to that information um, and make sure that it's redundant and, and, and capable in all cases. So there's a long tail of problems that you and I are really capable at figuring out, right? Um, if there's you know, a dog running across the street or a raccoon, how do we react? And, and humans have a great ability to determine what to do uh, based on a series of heuristics. And uh, for us, it's, it's just a matter of making sure that we're programming that into the vehicle and seeing all of these different cases and then uh, working them out and, and making sure that uh, you know, our vehicle handles them appropriately. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Dan Can. Dan is the Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder of Cruise, a leader in self-driving car technology. Um, then my, my kids convinced me uh, about a year ago to buy a Tesla Model 3, and there is some self-driving element in there. Um, I don't have this LiDAR thing on top, and uh, the, the, there is n nothing sitting on top of the roof, if you will. It's, it's entirely camera-driven. Can you explain us the pros and cons of these kind of different paradigms into the self-driving technology world? Uh, sure. So um, there's kind of a great debate out there on whether or not LiDAR is something that is necessary for, for the vehicles. And, and in our opinion, it's, it's something that only adds to the vehicle, right? It, 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 it is uh, a sensor that uh, gives you such like detailed information that if you can have it, why wouldn't you have it? And uh, for us, uh, you know, we believe that that's the case. The cost of these sensors is coming down drastically over time. And um, going back to one of my other points, it creates a more robust system that is more redundant. Um, so you know, whether or not you can drive with or without lidars, you know, to uh, be determined. Uh, for us, we believe that it's worth putting into the vehicle to create a safe vehicle that, you know, operates in, in uh, a lot of different use cases. Um, and uh, we believe that it's it's something that um, can only help our system. Without going too much into your proprietary information, can you give us a sense of the extra cost of the LiDAR and radar technology that you have over a solution that would only be camera-based? Uh, so today, LiDARs are a little more expensive than where we hope they will be in the future. Um, and so, uh, you know, but, but 
as, as the costs come down, we believe that it's, it's really only going to cost a couple hundred dollars to install these things into cars in the future. So, so right now they're like, it's like tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, not hundreds, but, but $20,000 or $30,000 directionally without, again, nailing you on a particular number? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. So uh, one thing, and, and again, kind of as the Tesla driver here, uh, when we had the first Tesla, we were kind of the Tesla on the block, and now there are many Teslas driving around, and, and we've seen the, the Tesla production uh, data and the output. Um, so there are lots of cars collecting through the cameras, lots of images, and there is this saying in data analytics, AI, uh, the data is in new oil, so to say, right? I mean, they're accumulating lots of use cases, lots of edge cases all the time. Um, is that potentially a substitute against a more self-controlled and locally intelligent mechanism that you have like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of semi-smart systems and you add those together and then somehow collectively they outperform a really smart system that is basically just kind of uh, equipped with more sensors? Are, are those substitutes? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I think, you know, that's, that's a, one of the major questions that everyone's asking is when will AI be better than, you know, kind of every, everything else? Um, and, and in our opinion, you know, it's, 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 if you can have a combination of both of those mm -hmm. things, why wouldn't you, right? We're, we're collecting tons of data as well. We're driving in, our, in, in San Francisco uh, to make our system better, right? All the uh, driving that we do 24 hours a day, seven days a week makes our system uh, stronger. And, and if we have that combined with uh, the sensor arrays, the, the better technology, all these other things, uh, we believe that that's going to make a, a safer car for our end user. Uh, Dan, what is ultimately your, your vision for how to monetize the value that you're creating through your technology? Uh, Tesla has jumped forth and back. I mean, uh, right now, the revenues come from the car. There have been these comments around the appreciating assets from Elon Musk and the fact that we would basically have the Tesla while we are at work. Our Tesla becomes a robo-taxi and makes, makes revenue on the side. What, what do you see Cruise be? Uh, is, is your endgame one of a kit? Is it one of being a self-contained car or is it one of providing a mobility service to a robo-taxi? Yeah, it's a great question. So we stopped building a kit um, as an aftermarket product uh, I don't know, something like four years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. But now we're working on building a full a full vehicle. Um, you know, we're integrated with GM um, and and working with Honda as well to create uh, you know a, a fully self driving vehicle that can take you from point A to point B. And once we do that, you know, we think there's there's plenty of opportunities. Uh, one of them might be in ride hailing. Uh, the other um, has as you may have seen is. Uh, an opportunity is in delivery. Um, and so we believe that we can service kind of a lot of different verticals inside of transportation once we've cracked that kind of core uh, product. So in, in, in some sense, if you have the self-driving car, you could be agnostic whether then somebody buys a, a e-car or a fleet of car and send them out at robo-taxis or whether they would just enjoy a nap while their car is safely driving them from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Exactly. Um, initially, we think that, you know, these are going to be deployed in a fleet scenario because, uh, you know, it, it makes the most sense. But over time, you know, we might see personally owned vehicles uh, that can take you, you know, across the country, for example. 
If I think about the key customer need here, speaking like a, a, as a design and innovation professor, um, what is really the user main user need compared to the status quo? Is it is it supporting the driver so that I can sleep and text on the journey? Is it a story of of asset utilization that while I'm at work, my car is basically making revenue and helps pay the bills at home, so to say? Um, what do you see as a main unmet user need at the moment? Um, that's a great question. So today, I think. Uh, well, the way that I'd look at it is there's there's a lot of time wasted inside of these inside of vehicles driving right in California people commute uh, over an hour a day almost mm-hmm. um, and you know that's a lot of time that you don't get back right time is like the one thing that you can't actually get more of and I think as we build these vehicles we can help people recapture their time recapture their freedom cars uh, you know when they were originally built were a way to establish people's freedom. They were a way to get out, get out of the city, um, travel across the country. And you know, I remember when on my 16th birthday, I went and got my driver's license because I wanted to be able to drive <laughs> yeah, to my friend's I house. Those right? days. Yeah. And now, uh, you know, you think about getting in your car, and you think about all the traffic you have to go through in order to just drive down to Palo Alto or you know to to, to visit your friends, and that is this kind of drain on society. And so mm-hmm. for us, uh, we think that this is an opportunity to give back millions of hours of time to the average American and uh, you know, really fulfill that, that need. It's interesting, and I'm not a historian, but I just had the pleasure on the first half of the show talking to one on the, from the Ford Museum. If you think, though, about the rebounds effect, so what's going to happen most likely, my hypothesis is that once we have the self-driving cars, uh, people will commute even further, right? Because an hour behind the steering wheel while you paying attention kind of is annoying versus two hours uh, sleeping, eating, and watching a movie is not too bad. And so suddenly the San Francisco area becomes sprawls out even further. Is, would, would you agree with that prediction? I mean, we've seen yeah, it at I least in the entirely, past, right? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I think it's entirely possible. I mean, I think uh, you're, you're starting to see people kind of, uh, well, we've seen people move further away into the suburbs. Uh, we're starting to see people move closer. I don't know if it's because of traffic or because, uh, you know, people get bored. But uh, I think it's definitely possible. Um, you know, it, it opens up a lot of the world when you don't have to think about how you're going to go from point A to point B, and you just kind of hop in a vehicle and you can do whatever you want. Talk about liability a bit. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about a huge advantage that the Ubers, the Lyfts, and that kind of the 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 ride-hailing business model has that is, is very hard to kind of replicate for robotaxi, in, in my opinion, is that um, A, labor is still cheap. I mean, because of everything going on in the economy and there being an uneven distribution of wealth, there are many people in the world who, who, uh, who are in this country who are happy to drive at fairly low hourly wages. And second, uh, as a human driver, if, I, if I'm an Uber driver and I roll over a stop sign or if it's a 35 zone and I drive 43, I mean, what's the big deal? Um, but but you as a, 
as, as a software company or as a technology company, you cannot codify these gray zones into things where they kind of encroach on being illegal driving versus a human driver kind of can casually always do a little more than, again, that, than you would be, want to be audited for. Uh, how do you think about that? Um, so I, I guess first I'd say, right, like uh, you, you mentioned that, oh, if they drive in these gray, gray areas or they do these things that, you know, uh, we aren't supposed to, it's not a big deal. I would, I would say that it is kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Their accidents happen because of those types of things. And uh, for us, we need to recognize that our car needs to be safe from day one and build it to the specifications. Um, and hopefully over time, you know, people recognize the value of that, right? If, if we can build a car that always is paying attention, always is predictable and, and obeys the law in, in certain circumstances, and, you know, you have uh, trust in it to take you from point A to point B and be safe, then, uh, you know, that's a massive advantage in my opinion. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, man, talking about safety, right, it's a number that I think, we as drivers, car companies, the human, the, the public at large, we don't like to be reminded of, but we are talking about 30,000 lost lives a year on, on, on our roads here in this country, which, again, if we can make any kind of serious improvement on that alone, that would be even more valuable to society, most likely, than the millions of hours of uh, driving time saved in the commute. Absolutely. And that's not even accounting for injuries and, and mm-hmm. kind of lost mm-hmm. productivity, right? There's there's tons of accidents that don't result in human uh, uh, loss. But, uh, you know, that's the, that's kind of our goal. That's another one of our goals. Absolutely. Where do you see yourself now relative to your competition in, in the sense that uh, self-driving has been really, I mean, all, all the big car companies are in it, lots of lots of startup activities. Uh, where do you see yourself in the in, in the competition? Well, there's, first off, there's a lot of uh, conversations happening, a lot of a lot of press, um, and and it's hard to know exactly what what is where everyone is. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, for us, we, we focus on what can we do to bring this technology as quickly as possible to uh, consumers, and and we're entirely focused on that. Um, you know, it, 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 most most companies don't. Uh, are not killed by their competition. They're they're just out executed or or, we're, or can't execute on their own plan. And so for us, you know, that's that's the biggest thing uh, that we try and do. Do you sometimes buy cars from your competitors and see like how they're doing compared to yours? Um, so so unfortunately, no. You can't buy any uh, fully self-driving vehicles. Well, fully today. self-driving, right? But but yeah. sm- say, say smart cruise control or so these these types of things, or is it just these things are just so common knowledge that they're basically all the same? Um, you know, I, I how they work in the underlying system, I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can make my guesses. Um, I have driven in the uh, Cadillac Super Cruise uh, because that one's that one's made yeah, by GM. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, it was it was a well, first off, an amazing system. Uh, I took it up to Napa, and and it was uh, made my drive so much easier. You mentioned uh, you mentioned GM and your your kind of work with GM. Uh, what did you bring to the table that made GM go and 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 get you guys, as opposed to GM saying that well we can do this internally? I mean, I, I think it's an interesting observation, right? That uh, smart a smart bunch of uh, uh, folks from MIT can can do and create technology in a way that 
the multi-billion dollar car companies in the U.S., in Germany, in France, in, in Japan couldn't. What, what made you so special? Um, well, I think uh, one of the things that GM recognized was this is a different problem than they've ever solved before, mm -hmm. right? This is primarily software. It's got a mix of hardware um, that you also have to build and kind of integrate. Um, but it's it's new. It's new innovation, and, and traditionally automotive companies have gone out to third-party suppliers to buy those types of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so for, for us, I think it's been a perfect partnership. Um, GM has brought a lot of expertise to us around safety, redundancy, how to build vehicles, how to make them scale. And we've brought the other side, which is kind of the speed element of uh, software development, uh, how to build um, this and, and solve these really hard complex problems and we've kind of married those two things together to help us deploy these these cars even faster yeah that's interesting that was where i was heading with my next question it's like now that you have that partnership with gm what can you do now that you would never have been able to pull off without that partnership uh yeah so i think one of the things that i other I than money of course <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it doesn't it doesn't hurt uh, <laughs> that, that they have have a lot of money but um at the same time, um, you know, I think the things that they bring to the table are, for us that have been extremely valuable have been around that safety, safety mm -hmm. uh, validation uh, side of things, right? I've never, I've never crash tested a vehicle, and I don't know even where to start with that. Mm -hmm. But GM has; they've done it several times, and, and they build very, very safe vehicles. The other thing is around scalability, right? Like Mass production. They have, uh, yeah. And, and product and exactly so you know we've mm -hmm. uh we haven't built cars on an assembly line um but with gm's help we now manufacture our vehicles in a plant in michigan that produces a hundred thousand vehicles a year so we have the ability to scale uh when we need it and that those types of things are, are really what um you know gm and, and and honda as well have brought to the table for us Dan, I, I, I'm not sure you heard this saying. I think it was the physicist Niels Bohr who made the, was quoted saying that predictions are always hard, especially if they involve the future. Uh, but I, I do want to put you on the spot and ask for your prediction. Uh, how, how much longer will I have to wait till I get a car from you guys that fully autonomously drives me from Philadelphia to Manhattan so that I can either watch a movie or be asleep? Um, how, how much longer do I have to wait? Uh, uh, you know, um, I wish I could answer that for you, but, um, you know, you just have to wait and see. <laughs> so, I mean, let's fast forward. I, I, I think we're both optimistic enough to say, like, um, it, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, right? And so uh, what, what's, what's your vision in, like, 15 years from now, where I, I think most likely, my, my guess is in 15 years you're pretty comfortable that you will have to deliver it, right? So what is, what is the driving going to look like in 15 years from now? Yeah, I think 15 years from now you are going to be able to get into an autonomous vehicle and it's going to be able to take you where you need to go, right? Um, and, you know, it will also be... Uh, you know, made for you, an experience that you control um, and, uh, you know, is, is going to be accessible to a, a much larger uh, population. Says Dan Khan, the chief product officer and the co-founder of Cruise, the leader in self-driving car technology. Thank you so much, Dan. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.